Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Welcome to Fellow Heirs, a show exploring the lives of various believers and how they serve their King with their lives. Good evening. Mm. It was uneventful. Nothing bad mm. happened. So that was good. Okay. Do you like uneventful? The older I get, the better boring is to me. But we talked once about how much you hated being bored. Um, boredom is is a relative term. When nobody things aren't blowing up at work, that leads to boredom, and that's a good thing. So. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm just gonna go ahead then, Noah. I'm gonna explain what we're doing. So the goal for the podcast is to get to know people in the church mostly what were you thinking what's wrong i'm just happy oh okay. it's very <laughs> hard smiling i'm like what's this up this is making my eyes cross i was gonna try yeah. to move it to the you can, side well you can do what i'm doing here yeah. and just kind of maneuver it yeah perfect just there as long as you have you sound good the mic pointed at your mouth yeah. okay um, i think that's right noah is that correct okay um yeah so like I said to you when we had our conversation asking you to come on, um, this is hopefully one of many. Just the goal is to not really, you know, just have a conversation and uh, get to know the people of the body, get to know the men of the body who we think have a lot of good wisdom. And it's not, this is something Jordan had said because I was talking with him today. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want it to be something where, we're just looking at the past and we're mm-hmm. kind of like looking at the glory days. Uh, I thought, cause Jordan made this point. And I thought it was excellent. We should be looking to the future and expecting God to not only do great things like he's done in the past, but even more so. Absolutely. Um, so really that's the goal of it is just to sit down with people, have a conversation, get to know them, understand uh, where they, where they came from, understand different challenges that they went through, get the wisdom that they received from going through those challenges, um, and also just have a good time, really. It's mm-hmm. not meant to be anything super serious, but also encouraging serious talks mm-hmm. would be great. So, I was told Joe Rogan would be here, though. No, man. He just missed our— Was uh, I lied to? Sam, did you— I thought he'd be here, too. I'm— so already 50% of the table is not happy yeah. with how this has landed. So, so. Yeah. Well, we'll see how it goes. You know, maybe he might show. I'm, I'm banking on no, though. I'd go with no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so we're going so to call the podcast Fellow Heirs, and that comes from the Romans passage in chapter 8, which says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. 
And obviously, you know, that tells us that we will suffer if we are truly saved. Um, but the, you know, the mean, the reason pulling our name from that is that we share that bond with the people that we will be talking with. Um, and just the, you know, the camaraderie that comes with it and also the joy that comes with it and the wisdom. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that really is the goal, just to glean, to get to know people, to hear where, they're com- where they've come from. And I've said enough already, mm-hmm. but Sam, do you want to start us off with a question from for Mike? Before we start, man. Oh, pray? yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's right. a great idea. Thank you, Mike. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, um, I am grateful for this time. I pray that you would uh, produce fruit from the work that these young men are doing. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be with everything they do and everything that we do this evening. Mm-hmm. I pray that you'd be glorified in this and that uh, even if this takes a direction, Lord, that we weren't planning, that we would see this as your will and uh, mm-hmm. we would see ourselves as doing your work in this evening. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Oh, uh, yeah. So, Sam? Yes. Um, we're going to start out with basics. Uh, would you mind giving yourself a small introduction and who you are and then uh, lead into how you became saved? Sure. Uh, my name is Mike Arndt. I am, uh, I've been a Christian for 26 years. I'm, I'm actually 28 years. I'm, I'm, was about the time I was 30 years old, I began to uh, know that something needed to change in my life. Mm-hmm. And I had a time with a number of circumstances that resulted uh, in me knowing that the path I was on was not a good one. And so I radically changed directions at about 38 year, about 30 years of age mm-hmm. and became a Christian after I, were, after I was married, okay. after I had two kids already, mm-hmm. uh, I believe a third one on the way. So sort of a, a major change in direction in my life, uh, midstream, if you will. Okay. Yeah. Was there like a specific, like, event that happened or was it more gradual? There were a number of factors that all came together. I had some extended family who became believers within the year before that I did, including Mm -hmm. my wife. My wife was walking with the Lord actually for probably six months before I was. Mm -hmm. So um, I was certainly watching as all that happened around me. Uh, I also had sort of a, a major health scare that brought me to terms with my mortality for the first time in my life. So in my 20s, and in most guys in their 20s, they think they're going to live forever. And they don't really think about uh, the likelihood that they'll die, yet we all die. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I had a brush with that, and uh, it made me think of my mortality. And if I was being honest in assessing myself, I knew that I deserved hell. I don't know that I could have verbalized it that way at the time, but I, I knew for a fact that the way I was living was not one that justified being in heaven when my time on earth was done. Very cool. Very cool. Um, yeah, I, I was going to ask, um, Sharon had mentioned that I was speaking to her a little bit just about your past. Mm-hmm. Um, Sharon had mentioned that you'd gotten saved through a Pensacola preacher. Well, it was very interesting. I was raised Roman Catholic, and, and my wife and I were married in the Catholic Church, and we were attending the Catholic Church at the time we both became believers. Uh, but we were not being fed in that church in any way. So there weren't sermons that convicted me. There weren't people challenging me to grow in my faith. And so I looked elsewhere. And at the time, uh, on cable, there was one channel devoted toward what I would call religious programming. And there was one pastor, uh, Jim Shetler, who was the uh, 
who was the chaplain, I believe, or perhaps even the president of Pensacola Christian College. And he had a program that was broadcast every Sunday night on this cable channel, this religious cable channel. So I watched him one night. I, for the first time in my life, the word of God jumped out at me and I was hungry for even more of it. So pretty soon I'm setting my VCR, which was the way we recorded television programs back then. And then I rigged up my stereo system, which was next to my TV, to actually create audio cassettes of his sermons. And then I began playing those in my car when I was traveling because I just wanted to uh, make sure that I was taking these messages in. I'd listened to them more than one time and actually found myself being fed in the Word of God uh, through TV programs and the recordings that I made for them. Yeah. What what was the, I'm curious about um, coming from Catholicism, like w- was there something that you heard from that preacher that made you think, wow, what am I doing coming to this church and not getting fed and, and not really retaining anything or not really learning anything or growing? Like was there something that he said or was it a really realization you had? Well, there were, there were a lot of things that I can look back in hindsight and see now that I'm not sure I could have verbalized or I even understood at the time. Uh, And it's, I mean, watching a television preacher in some ways is like a podcast. There's value to it, but the value is all theoretical. There's no one speaking to me about God's word who knows who I am as a person. And, And it's always easier to take God's word in theory But when someone who knows you and walks with you in a local church, a Bible-based church, starts taking that same word and applying it to your life in a very real and specific way, it's actually, it's more difficult, but it's also more beneficial and more fruitful. So I, you know, I think of the prophet Nathan who went to King David and he said, he told this story that seemed very disconnected at first, where there's this rich man, he Mm -hmm. takes this ewe lamb from a poor man And David's all on board, right? He believes in that word as it's being spoken by the prophet. And he says, yeah, that man should die. And then the prophet Nathan comes back with, you are that man. You are the man. And when you're in a local church, when you're engaged in the life of the body, with the body in the church, and they know you and you know them, and they know all your secrets and you know all theirs, that's where the second part of what the prophet Nathan did really resonated. David was convicted when that application in a hypothetical was applied to him specifically. So again, I don't think I could have verbalized this 28 years ago, but I had this walk that was theoretically filling me with God's word by a man who didn't know that I existed. And I knew that I wanted the fellowship without being able to verbalize it from being in a local church. And so we went from that transition of saying, this is wonderful. I'm grateful that there are men who can study God's word and preach it to me and help me unpack it and make me love God's word and want to be in there more. But I knew I needed that other part where it got applied to me specifically saying, hey, Mike, this is what God's word says. Look at this in your life right now with A, B, and C going on. That part doesn't happen in a podcast. That doesn't happen in a TV preacher. This doesn't happen on something you listen to in the radio while you're driving. That happens when real men get involved with you in your life. And, and so, I, again, without knowing, not without thinking of that the way I am now, I knew I needed more than what I was getting from watching it on TV and listening to it on cassette tapes. And so we eventually did leave the Catholic Church then and, and uh, became a part of the first Bible-believing church that I had ever attended. So as you see, like, your remnants of being a 
Catholic growing up, how do you see like positive and positives and negatives of the that previous version of faith? Well, I have a, a very convoluted walk to get me to where I am today that included not only growing up with Roman Catholicism, but when I left the Catholic Church, my goal was to run as far from it as I could and do a 180. And I, I ended up in, in a Pentecostal church. I don't know that I was ever a Pentecostal, but I ended up in a Pentecostal church. And what I'll say about those experiences is they've been very helpful to me. So when I was a Roman Catholic, it did teach me to love and respect the church and respect the authority of the church. Don't agree with all the theology theology taught in the Catholic Church, but grateful for the lessons I learned. When I got to a Pentecostal church, I learned to expect big things from God. Again, I don't agree with all the theology of that church, but I learned lessons there that have been incredibly helpful to me in my walk with the Lord and where I am today. <clears throat> yeah, a lot to think about. There's so many directions you could go with asking you questions on it. I, I was curious also about, um, you said you had relatives who were saved before you got saved. That's correct. Um, was that John and my dad? John being your... Yeah, my uh, brother-in-law, John. That's right. And his wife, Amy. Yeah. Your dad, yeah. Tim. Mm -hmm. um, there, there were... I began to just be surrounded by, by more people who loved the Lord. They were mainly new believers, but there was a zeal that I began to be surrounded by in, in several different directions. Uh, I had a co-worker start working with me in the workplace who was a child of God, right when I came alive in the Lord. I do believe that God ordained just people from every walk of my life uh, that were put in there to speak to me at a time where I really didn't know where to go next. I didn't know what to do. Um, Sam, do you have any? Yeah, so that took you to a Pentecostal church. Eventually, you come to Christ the Word. Where's mm -hmm. the... Can you fill the blanks in between there? Um, we... I think the best way to describe it would be to say we we kind of found ourselves in the same place we were at the end of our time in the Catholic Church. We said, we really need to stretch ourselves right now. Doesn't mean we weren't in that previous church with a lot of good believers, a lot of people who I felt strongly about and who I loved, but we really felt strongly that we needed to be in a place that stretched us even more. And we, we uh, spent probably a better part of six months looking for another church because there was a sense that there was still something lacking. The word was preached faithfully every Sunday in our last church, but we just felt that we needed to, to do something different and to go to a place where we thought we could grow even more. And there were, was at the time, how I understand it is that you were already at Christ the Word when my parents, you were pulling them to come to Christ the Word. We, we invited them. That's yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. So. Yeah, and there were already a question I had also about specifically at that time that um, Jordan had mentioned to me was I'm curious about the dynamic that was deciding to have lots of kids. Mm -hmm. How quickly after getting because you have how many kids? I have eleven. Eleven children, um, and deciding to do that obviously is a big undertaking, mm -hmm. but. How quickly after getting saved did you say to Sharon, well, this is this is what's right? I mean, how, you know, what did that journey even look like? Well, it, it like the rest of my journey, very convoluted. <laughs> not, not a straight line by any stretch of the imagination. I mentioned I was raised Roman Catholic, and really we were at the tail end of Roman Catholicism where um, people were encouraged to not use birth control and have as many kids 
as they possibly could. So I grew up with that. My mother is one of nine children. She's the middle of nine children. My aunt and uncle had, on my dad's side of the family, had 11 children, have 11 children. And so we were used to being surrounded by big families. I would go to my grandmother's growing up, and most of my cousins would be there on Thanksgiving, and we would have, I would have 35 to 40 cousins in a very small house with me. And so we, we sat on the steps. You couldn't even get a card table at 10 years old on Thanksgiving, my grandmother's house, because we, so I sort of had, I was hardwired with, you just have a lot of kids. You just do that. And, and I'm the oldest of five. And, and I, I really, most of the people I knew came from f- at least what I call medium-sized families and a lot of them large-sized families. Um, I actually found less of an emphasis in the Protestant church on, on, fr- on that particular type of fruitfulness than I did in the Roman Catholic church. Hmm. Um, and, and we've gone down a road. We had uh, four children and there was a three-year gap between our fourth and fifth. And uh, there's no one more grateful in this podcast than Noah that I changed my thinking on that <laughs> since, he, since he's married right. to my number five. Uh, but we, we had a, we said, man, we're done. We can't do this anymore. And we were challenged by people who were having more children and we were convicted by a reading of God's word. And it was that combination of that local per- people in the church who tug at you in a loving ways and sometimes in stronger ways and just continuing to read through God's word and saying, God calls us to be fruitful in every meaning of that word. So we were convicted that we were wrong, and we had no reasons other than the selfish reasons to stop having children. So um, we did continue ahead seven more after we were convicted of that. Continuing on with that line of thinking, um, you ran into challenges with Sharon's health, correct, with having a lot of she kids. Did, she had an emergency C-section with number six for us, with Katie. Mm. And it was uh, reasonably, well, it was traumatic for me, so I can only imagine how traumatic that was for mm. her. A- and uh, we chose to continue having children uh, and with, with some medical advice that suggested otherwise. Now, the, the medical advice was conflicting. It wasn't the entire medical community saying never have another child. But in general, when we spoke to those in the medical community who valued fruitfulness, they encouraged us down that path with, with you know, cautiously, but still doing it. Um, and others were, were very much against it. So uh, we, we did believe from what we were able to study and connecting with the right people in the medical community that it was okay. If, if my wife's life would have been in danger, we would be done having children. But we had talked to a number of people whose opinions we respect, and, and we believed that we could cautiously move forward with that. So she did end up requiring C-sections for every birth after that. So she had six C-sections. Six more. And that was, uh, um, so there, there, there certainly are risks with that, but there are, there are always risks with anything we do in faith. And, and so we continued, we, were, we, we paused at each one and said, is this God's will? And believed it was. And we continued until it was apparently physically impossible for us to have more children. So I had three kids in my 40s. So. Right. Yeah. Um, I have another question about children, but Sam, did you? No, you're good. Uh, um, yeah, just topics. thinking about, I mean, how can you not look at Jordan Art and see a crazy kid that is completely changed now? I mean, I just had a conversation with him today, and I was blown away by the amount of wisdom that he has now yeah, as a pastor. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm just curious, like, what, yeah, just looking back over Jordan's life and seeing all of the ups and downs, were there moments where 
you know, just looking at him now, you're like, there's no way that he's going to turn out this way. You know, just different things that had happened with going through school and stories from TTA that I remember. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, just I just thought maybe that was a good where good place to sit on for a second with Jordan specific, specifically. Different children are challenging for different reasons. And I've got 11 kids, and they have 11 different personalities. It is hard to believe they were all swimming in the same gene pool at one moment in time because they are so incredibly different. And, you know, what I'll say about Jordan is we were coming alive as Christians at the time he was born. And a lot of what he gets, what is said about him, is quite frankly a failure on our part as parents in our early days. We didn't know what to do. You know, I would put up baby gates all over my my small house just to try to restrain him, not knowing that it was my job to train him to not cross certain lines in our home. And so I would go to work in the dark in the winter and trip over baby gates every few feet because I thought that physically restraining a child in that way, having every cabinet door in my kitchen have some sort of lock that I could never figure out on it was the way to go. And then I realized it was my job. As I, as I grew as a Christian, to teach my children yes and no. So as we evolved as parents, we purposely left things where kids could get them. So we would create a teaching opportunity to teach them not to touch them. But th- that thinking was beyond me when my older kids were very, very young. And so I, I, I made some mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes. Uh, I'll also say that if someone is what we think of as rambunctious in their younger days, Our goal is not to break that and change their personality. Our goal is to direct that. And what I will say about Jordan today is the zeal he had for escaping my house when he was two is now a zeal for being a shepherd in the church. It's the same zeal and the same enthusiasm directed toward godly means. So in some ways, nothing about what my son Jordan's doing now is a surprise to me. It's simply redirected. And I praise God for it. Mm -hmm. I praise God for it. So you... and. Now, many other fathers in our church have a culturally rare opportunity to raise kids and then have still and see them into adulthood like Jordan, become a pastor, and then still have kids that you're able to shape. Danny, your youngest, is 10 now, right? He's 11. Yeah. 11. Um, so, with seeing the way you raised Jordan, how does that impact how you raise Danny now? Do you think that, like, like Nick or I would say, well, yeah. How, how, how does that idea impact how you raise Danny now or your other mm-hmm. younger children? We, we, Sharon and I will jokingly call our older children our practice children. <laughs> and, and we'll say, you know, we, we learn some things with the older ones. Um, I think it's not uncommon for people who, who have our parents for a lot of children to change as they get older. I was bigger on rules 15, 20 years ago. I was more convinced that my rules would be helpful to me. I try not to have too many rules as a parent. Now, I'm not saying all parents have some rules, but if you go from parent to parent, most of their rules are different. And that doesn't mean that one's a good parent or a bad parent. I sometimes called it the Goldilocks syndrome, that if I give my child a 10 p.m. curfew, that I'm, I'm in the sweet spot and I'm perfectly holy as a, as a father. I'm, I'm being facetious right now. But the guy next door who gives his kid a 9 p.m. curfew. Well, he's just too legalistic and restrictive, and he's going to push, push his kids away. And the guy at the other door who gives his kids an 11 o'clock curfew, this is way too permissive, just lets them get away with way too much. That's where my rules were taking me, to that kind of thinking. 
So I had to really say, look, I have different rules for different kids in my own home based on what I think they need. Some of my kids need more rules. Some need less. I think my anger is in control more with my later children. And I don't know if that's sanctification or old age. And I don't know which one it is. But it takes more for me to pop out of the chair when I need to deal with a problem now. Now, I'm less likely to blow my top and say something inappropriate that I have to ask forgiveness for. But I also have to guard that I don't go soft on the younger ones as well. So that's a caution later in, in, in parenting as well, that you, you, you do sit there and call the, uh, the, the one 11-year-old to the same thing you called the 30-year-old to at, when he was 11. And that is, you, you need to love and fear God. Do you, do you find that true, that um, the idea that parents do grow softer on their younger children than on their older children? It, it can happen that way, but sometimes the older ones perceive it as softness because they're the first ones to call you out about it. But they'll perceive it as softness because you've changed your methods. Less rules mm. can be perceived by an older child as you're going easy on the younger ones, when in reality, you're accomplishing goals with less rules. And so the methods do change. And, and Lord willing, we build upon the wisdom we had from four or five, six, seven kids ago and try to do things a little bit differently. But I don't, I, I, when I give advice to younger parents, I typically don't encourage more rules. Mm-hmm. There, there's always a... There's always a time where a rule is important, but I don't lead with that. Okay. When I'm, oh, go ahead, Sam. So um, you're pretty well known in the church, and you've done a couple talks here on discipline. Is there, <laughs> it, um, is there a specific thing when you think of raising sons and daughters, discipline or not discipline, that you want to like specifically ingrain in them? Yeah, I think it's, it, just like my example of the local church before, where you have to be immersed in the lives of the of your church family, you, of course, need to be immersed in the life of your literal family, your biological family, your adopted children. And, and it takes a different course with every kid. There are different kids who, there are kids who need to be spanked 10 times. There are kids who you might go weeks or months without spanking. And so I, I don't, I, you know what, what? What I'll say about parenting and discipline is that my advice has become much shorter, and and I think there's really two things that you want to do in parenting. One is to first practice holiness in your own life and commit mm. as a husband and wife and a father and mother to be holy. Because what I've learned is that kids don't always do what you say, but they always do what you do. And just like King David in the previous example. You can have a sin that somehow you can justify in your own life. But when it's brought to you in terms of someone else, it's easier and far more objective to deal with. So mm-hmm. I have my own sins, and when I see them replicated in my children, I'm crushed. I'm crushed for multiple reasons. One is they learned it from me. The other reason is I now have to deal with a sin that if I could have conquered or at least greatly reduced at a younger age, I wouldn't be dealing with it now. So the key to parenting is easy and it's hard. It's practice being holy. And a lot of parents don't like that answer because they're hoping for a quickie two-minute solution when we talk about how to redirect discipline in their home. But the, f- the first is to, to be holy. The second thing I would say is allow the church to let the men and women of your church to be, be mm. spiritual mothers and fathers yeah. with your children, that you have a pact with every other parent in that church is, look, I'll parent your kids, you parent mine. Mm because I have seen so much fruit in the life of my children from what spiritual mothers and fathers in this church have said to them. 
Sometimes they've said the exact same thing I said to them, but they listen to the other person. And so youth leaders, uh, Awana leaders, Sunday school teachers, I hear my kids repeat the things that they say and name the person who taught them that. And so my kids are listening. So there's, there's two parts of that. One is you call on other adults in the church to parent your children, and you call and you, you give them permission to do that, which not every parent does. So you say, look, you see something going on in my kids, I want you dealing with them like he or she is your own kid. And, and, and so you're constantly giving that permission to people. And then the other is you tell your kids, an adult in this church tells you something, you better do exactly what he or she says. So there, there's sort of two sides to that coin. Yeah, the it's yeah. If you take a step back and just look at the benefits of trusting other brothers and sisters in Christ to to help raise your kids, I mean, it's like you because you're going to have blind spots. You just mm-hmm. will naturally not recognize things that other people will see. Well, it's very humbling to have someone come up and compliment you on a on a character trait they see in your adult child. And then you, you really dwell on it and you think, they didn't get that from me. They learned that from someone else in the church who was a spiritual mother or father to them. And, and that was a blind spot and is a blind spot for me. And so that person really is the one somebody should be thanking and, and, and acknowledging and, and praising for what they see. Because sometimes they didn't get it from me because I messed that up. I had that blind spot and I didn't teach my kid that. So. When it comes to um, spanking kids, was that something you grew up familiar with, being spanked by your parents? Um, yes, and there was never a time in in my life where I thought, where I had to answer the question about spanking. That that was never. It was something that I thought, as a as a man growing up in an, a home with 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 no signs of faith that I saw, no no believers, unbelieving home. Um, I saw discipline be effective. So, you know, what I saw was even people who don't fear God, still see biblical principles work when they're applied. I, I guess you call it, it's called common, common grace. grace. Yeah, yeah, where you just see people simply see be blessed by following godly principles. And so I, I'm, I, I was a fan of spanking before I became a believer yeah. and became more of a fan of spanking perhaps when I became a believer. So. Well, I'm something I wanted to jump into now, unless Sam, you have a thought? No, um, was the relationship we have you have or had with your father? Mm-hmm. Um, something that Sharon had mentioned was that when you went off to college, I believe, or at the time, um, your dad had—I can't remember the exact details. Just the, I guess, the relationship that you had with your dad all throughout your years of being young, going into college, mm-hmm. getting married, getting saved. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of those things and just the, what was the dynamic between you guys have a good relationship? What was that like? Yeah, I, I would say I, I'm the oldest of five and typically the oldest son, as you know, is typically very loyal to his father. And so I think that happens in, in, in lots of homes. We have a lot of that example around this table. And, and, uh, and so I, I would say I always had a good relationship with my dad. Uh, as I got into my first or second year of college, it was clear that my parents' marriage was not going to last. And mm-hmm. so I took, a f- I took advantage of the fact that I had moved out of the home. I started signing 12-month leases instead of nine-month leases and just didn't go home in the summer. And, and uh, like a number of my siblings, we all just sort of tried to flee the scene. And hmm. so I think 
although I never had a time where I was separated from my dad in any way. I think there were times where I distanced myself from my whole family during that divorce. So that probably included my dad. And there was a, an awkwardness or a lot of tension in the family that I quite frankly just tried to avoid. So I, I but, but in general, I would say that I had a good relationship with my dad. Um, he has a lot of traits that I've tried to imitate. A lot of things, he's an incredibly hard worker. And uh, I've tried to imitate him any way that I can in, in, in that way. So, um, so I, I, but I'd say overall, it was a reasonably good relationship. Hmm. So. Well, what was his reaction to you getting saved? Did he, well, because he was a Catholic, correct? R- right, right. He, I, I, you know, we, we certainly felt a burden to, to witness to our entire family hmm. when we became believers. And uh, we, we would invite my dad to church and he did go. Um, he ended up in a nursing home with memory issues at the end of his life. And I don't know what I saw there. I saw remorse. I don't know that I saw repentance. I, I will have to wait till yeah. another day to know that answer. Uh, but but I, I certainly saw regret and remorse. I don't know if I saw repentance or not. But I, I stayed as close to him, especially as he got ill later in life. And uh, uh, c- certainly was, uh, was one who always wanted to see fruit the fruit of repentance in his life. So. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, certainly many challenges to, as every family will experience challenges of, of just being a follower of God and then mm-hmm. pushing them to either know God or, or trying to convince them of the truth of scripture or pushing them to be better Christians or every family has their own challenges. Sure. But um, Sam, did you have a question? Um, thinking of, not if you have one on this topic. I am trying to think of something so, like uh, something to springboard off of in this same vein. But if you have something that you would, it would uh, you've talked about how you. So we, me and Nick, previously were in faithful fatherhood mm-hmm. last year. Yeah, you started it off by in telling us that you believe that a lot of, if not all of the issues and sins within the church, often sprang out of a lack of fatherhood or a like. Yeah, lack of fatherhood or an issue within somebody not being a father when they should have been. Could you unpack that idea a little bit? Yeah, I. What what I'd say is you can. It goes back to the theoretical versus the real. Mm-hmm. You can sit there and have eighteen and twenty years of teaching about what the roles of men and women are in marriage, but then suddenly you put a ring on your finger and you put one on hers and you get into it every day, and you realize that now that it's real, it's really really hard. So. What we've tried to do with Faithful Fatherhood is give guys who are in their early years of, of being a husband and Lord willing, being a father, and say, look, here's how this works. What are you guys running into right now? So we're trying to give real-time advice as you're getting in the thick of it, and the honeymoon is worn off, and it's real, and there are bills that need to be paid, and there are diapers that need to be purchased, and there are family, extended family dynamics that complicate your life, and then... You know, you thought, wow, I'm going to get married and have sex, and then sex becomes a reason to fight, too. And no one thinks about that before they're married. And, and, and then it's like, well, not everybody thinks that I'm disciplining my child very well, and they think I should be doing X and I'm doing Y, and there isn't enough money this month. And I asked my wife to have children, and I'm now trying to figure out how I'm going to pay for all this. And so... We just try to get in there and, and, and look, I think the answer, th- there is no organization on the face of this earth where somebody's not in charge. And that doesn't mean it's the smartest person in the room. 
it's not the you know the one who 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 you know it's 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 there's a number of reasons but God ordains in in everything in corporations right. in churches in uh neighborhood associations there's somebody in charge because there's somebody when push comes to shove who has to own every decision that's made and and for some reason we don't accept that same premise in marriage and we we claim to that there's going to be some other way to do this and so uh, when I sin, I sin on either extreme of the truth, and I like swinging one wildly from one way to another, and I and I need to not do that. So um, somebody will say to a man, "Well, you're not leading in your home," and then he'll become a brute, an absolute jerk to be around, who belittles his wife, says she's good for nothing, bosses her around all day, and doesn't value her opinion, and that is ungodly and sinful and unbiblical. The dude who abdicates goes 180 the other way. And he says, my wife's actually very good at making decisions. Back, so is my wife. I mean, she is good at making mm-hmm. decisions. But I still have to own her decisions as if they were my own. But the guy who abdicates says, man, she's just killing it right now. I'm going to play video games. I'm going to golf. I'm going to play disc golf. I'm going to go bowling. I'm going to do whatever else I like to do. And I'm going to let her do 90% of the heavy lifting in the home. And maybe I've got a job and maybe I'm contributing financially more than she is. But beyond that, I'm abdicating in every other way. And abdication is real, and it happens, and I've abdicated before, and I've had to repent of it, and I still have to fight not abdicating because it's just so easy to do. Yep. It's just so easy to say, you know, I'm just checking out on this one. This kid is acting up. I'm 20 feet away, but my wife is 19 feet away, and I'm going to let her deal with it. And it's wrong, and it's just wrong. But it's easy to go either extreme, like I'm going to be this, I'm this uh you know, men abuse the term patriarch and say, I'm just going to be this dude who just bosses everyone around all day and he makes his family bitter. Mm-hmm. And then the other extreme is the guy abdicates and he makes his family bitter. The result is bitterness either way, but the guy who abdicates looks better because, oh, he's such a sweet guy. And I'm not saying don't be sweet, but be sweet and don't abdicate. But sometimes abdication looks like sweetness to some people. And so on the outside, there's nobody really concerned about that relate about that marriage where the guy's abdicating. When the guy's a jerk, it's obvious. Nobody likes him or very few people like him. So th- there is this sense that we have to do what God says to, for, to do. And it's somebody's always in charge. You'll be held accountable for your wife on the day of judgment that she won't be held accountable to you for for you. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's a sense that you got to know your role, and you got to be ready to go bed at night knowing some people are unhappy with your decisions. And you can't say I'm afraid of being cut off from sex, so I won't do my job today as a husband and father. And you, and there can't be that kind of manipulation in the, in the relationship. Period. Right. But right. it can't start with everybody figures out what somebody's buttons are and they push them when they want to, so that there's a uh, there's no need for us to assume the rules we want. Satan, the world, our flesh, always going to be fighting us from doing the right thing. So it's just, a, it's a constant battle. It's still a battle for me to say, I'm not going to abdicate. And in the midst of not abdicating, I'm not going to be a jerk. My wife has so many good ideas in the course of a week that I would never think of. <laughs> yes. And, and, yeah, and sometimes yeah. she'll tell me without me asking, but sometimes I'll say, what do you think about this? And I don't say it to pander, I say it because I need to, need to shut up for a minute and listen to what she has to say. Don't always take her advice, but I always consider her advice. You help out with um, marriage counseling for couples that want to get married at this church. Um, do you have, you know, kind of a formula that you go by off of? I know I went through the exact same 
lesson or session, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. with you and Sharon. Extremely helpful. I remember talking about discipline and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And um, but do you have you guys specifically talk about raising children? Correct. We do. Um, do you have a you know some advice that you always give or you always try to show them because it's only one session. You know, right. there's so much. You got a whole marriage ahead of you or ahead of you know these, this couple that wants to get married. Is there something you know a formula you go off of or or a piece of advice that you always try to give? Well, something I mentioned earlier, I would hold to, which work on being holy. Mm, and and yeah. I'm sitting down with them. They at least have at least nine months notice of whether they're going to be parents or not. And so I say, look, work on being holy now. If you wanted to get ready for a fire, you'd have a fire drill. And in some ways, when you have a child, it's a little bit like a fire, right? It's a little bit like the intensity and the energy and the, oh, this kid's sick. And do I have the car seat in right? And all these other things. Practice being holy until you do have children and, and get ready for that. The other thing I would say is when, when, if you just throw out discipline to 100 people, 99 pe- of those 100 will think about reactive discipline. Well, am I going to spank, time out, chair, send them to a room, ground them, take away the cell phone? Uh, it, and really what I encourage with parents is you go into parenting expecting to do proactive discipline. It takes dozens of different forms, but it is an opportunity to say, Look, this is the way we do this. This is the way we eat. This is the wh- this is how we have manners at the table. This is how we handle bedtime. These are the things we do. This is what we do during a worship service. This is what we do when an adult is talking to us. And, and you could think of hundreds and probably thousands of scenarios that are proactive yeah. discipline operations. In my house, we gave every kid a chore at two years old because that, that's proactive discipline. In my life... Spiritually, I'm at my best when I'm very busy, even if I'm complaining about being very busy. When I have downtime, it's spiritually usually the worst for me. So I try to teach my children that a life spent working hard and being busy is a very good thing. So two-year-olds in my house get to, get to unload the dishwasher. That's their first chore, and we get them going on that so they're contributing to the family, although a two-year-old unloading a dishwasher is really not helping in any meaningful way. You get dirty dishes in the dish drawer right. sometimes. but. It is the way you don't you don't have a two year old engage in your home because it's going to be helpful. You do it because you're teaching proactive discipline. The first time they cut the grass, the first time they do laundry, the first time they wash the windows, they will do a horrifically bad job at it. But so did all of us the first time we did all right. those things. And so uh, it's just this overarching principle that it's good to be busy. It's good to be busy in service to others. It's good to do things that don't get you paid. Some things you do in life don't result in money. It results in you serving in the church. I want my kids serving in the church. I want them emptying the garbage. I want them holding the door for people. I think that concept of proactive discipline is one that a lot of parents miss. That, That idea that you are, that you're not reacting to sin is that you're looking to direct the way in the hope of preventing sin. Yeah, it makes sense too, because when you're, only doing a reaction, you are creating the culture that trains them to know that that's what you'll do Mm -hmm. and that you're not going to expect much else, that I'm only going to get corrected when I do something wrong. So therefore I can do as much, many things as I do until ding, I hit something that, oh, okay, I'll stick to stay away from that. Instead of, like you just said, making a culture in your own home that is glorifying to God, that has expectations, that has, you know, rules, like you said, not every, you know, not a rule for everything, but has guidelines that you expect your kids to follow and that you expect them to be doing Mm -hmm. um, actions and, and serving and whatnot. And I, that's huge, obviously, 
we understand that coming from homes that we had expectations for us as well, but just in terms of Christian life, you know, we're so blessed to have a church that has expectations for the kids and for the families and for the fathers calling them to say, calling them to do what they need to do, what God says they need to do. Um, yeah. Well, it, I, I encourage new parents. I say w- w- in those moments before you fall asleep at night, after you get the last kid in bed and you're exhausted and you're talking, sit there and say in the last week, did we have more reactive discipline or was it more proactive? Hmm. And if you can find a way to get to 80, 20, 80% proactive, suddenly the reactive discipline things go down. And, and the thing to remember is you think, well, I, I said it once. Well, you didn't say I love you to your wife once. That wasn't enough. So don't expect your proactive discipline opportunities to say, well, I told them not to run out the door. I told them not to put their finger in the socket and the outlet. That repetition is also a part of this. And it's like, look, what do we expect? Expect you to grow up and be godly. You can have things that you just teach your kids to repeat back to you. you know? mm-hmm. and, and you can have a list of things that you think is important and they list them back to you. Mm-hmm. The other thing is when you change venue, you have to sometimes retrain on proactive discipline. So uh, my, my family lives on a busy street. So when my kids were learning to ride a bike, we would go out in the driveway with a chalk line and draw it across the driveway. And we said, look, I see one bike tire track that goes through that chalk, you're losing the bike. That's it, you're done, or whatever discipline I wanted to implement. Well, what would happen? We'd go on a camping trip and I'd say, where did you go? And they would have biked halfway, all the way, all the way around the campground to the lake and <laughs> 20 other places. Well. I didn't redo proactive discipline with a change in venue. So what about at grandma's house? What are, you know, what about there? I, you can, you can define things proactively, but then you have to remember that if you, if the circumstances change, you've got to redefine things. Now you should be repeating expectations anyway, but the v- change in venue can, hmm. can require the need to reestablish the proactive. So what about now you have a bike and you didn't have a bike before? How about now you're driving a car? and you weren't right. driving a car before. Make good decisions doesn't always mean anything when you're 12 or 13 or 16. Giving examples of what good decisions are, look, you can only have one kid in the car who's not in your family right now. Make sure that's the case, right? Um, it, it might involve a curfew. It might involve uh, not going to certain places, not being alone in a car with somebody of the opposite sex. There could be different rules, different things. So proactive discipline, to your point, Nick, inevitably results in rules. You're two years old, hmm. you're emptying my dishwasher. That's a rule. Uh, but don't expect the rules to save your kids. Right. Expect the Holy Spirit to save your kids. Absolutely. Yeah. Sam? Nothing? I was I, just, I just going to move over to a different topic completely, but do you have something? Um, well, I was going to move into elder. Oh, okay. Great. Okay. Yeah. So being a father in the church, um, how do you kind of like, use that metaphor of having rules, expectations for your literal kids to the children of the church spiritual or children. spiritual children. Um, and then if you want to eventually speak on how you became an elder. Yeah. Um, you know, what I'd say is fatherhood is just something that once you commit yourself to it, it's just hard to turn off. So huh. I don't think, I'm sure that I think differently when I speak to a spiritual child in the church than I do my own children, biological children. Um, but, but in general, I'm giving the same advice. I'm, trying, I'm, I'm, I'm shooting toward the same goal. Uh, I'm, I, I, I'm asking questions. I'm saying, so what, what's going on in your head right now with this? Why did you do that? I, I'm, I'm, 
I'm asking questions, and I don't think there's a significant difference. Now, I wouldn't invoke punishment with somebody else's kid as quickly as I'd invoke mine uh, in my own. Um, but I think the general principle is exactly the same, where it's you just, you just start becoming a spirit, father, and, and then the lines blur between the kids who are on your tax return and the ones who are not. Hmm. At that point, it doesn't, it doesn't change because I can't change my thinking that much. I would tend to give the same advice to my kids that I would give to, to the three of you. So. Yeah, I can definitely vouch for that as a recipient of a lot of it. Um, <laughs> what? And you still invited me here. <laughs> <laughs> it's been fantastic. I mean, yeah. Um, when you are encouraging your kids and, like, again, being a recipient of it many times, you've been a fantastic encourager. How do you kind of frame, think about encouraging people? How did you grow into that? Yeah. I mean, because men specifically, I think, are just bad at being encouragers. Um, using words pretty much specifically. Um, but, yeah, how would you? How did you grow into being? Yeah, I would say there, there have been many times as well for me that you've been encouraging to me or something you have said has stuck with me. I can think specifically of last summer you said something to me, and it just once a week probably – and it's been fantastic. So how do you, yeah. Uh, I, I think that I need to be better at encouraging. I, I will say that. But what I've learned, and this is probably, I probably learned this in the workplace as much as I've learned it anywhere else, is, is that people who, who know you care about them are more likely to listen when you have to say something very hard. In the workplace, we often have to say things that are very hard to people. And you know, I've heard people use different metaphors for this, that you're filling up a bucket because when you have a really hard conversation, you're going right. to take something out of the bucket. You can use whatever metaphor you want. But, but what I'd want to convey more specifically, instead of making it a math problem, is to say that if you know that I love you, what I'm going to say, something hard, um, I, hopefully you see that through the lens of my love for you and not me just going after you that day. And I, I don't think I convey that every time the way I want. But what I tell my children is, you will be disciplined in this life. You would rather be disciplined by someone who loves you than by someone who doesn't. So all those people we talked about before, Awana leaders, youth leaders, Sunday school teachers, your parents, they're going to discipline you. And if they don't or if you don't heed the discipline, a judge, a police officer, somebody will discipline you who mm -hmm. likely doesn't love you. Take heed of the discipline given to you by those who love you. And I think it really just boils down to, it goes back just to the, the beauty of the local church where people are really digging in with each other. I have an opportunity every time I interact with everybody, and they have that opportunity with me to let me know that they love me and that I love them. And it just makes a hard thing so much easier to hear. It doesn't make it easy to hear, but it makes it easier to hear. So I want people to know that I love them. And that is me sometimes reminding myself I have to love people right now. And sometimes it, that's not easy, and I fail at that regularly. But the idea of um, having someone who loves you say something hard to you is always, is always the favorite way. Mm -hmm. It should be the favorite way. Now, sometimes when you're super close to somebody, it's also easier to have harsh conversations and frank conversations, and sometimes too harsh. Uh, when I see siblings, siblings have the harshest conversations with each other, whether those siblings hmm. are teen. Uh, <laughs> I mean, my mom, I mentioned my mom earlier. Um, 
Seven of her eight siblings are still alive in their, in their 80s. The youngest two are in their late 70s. But when you're around them, they are as harsh with each other as, as let me say, as direct with each other. Mm-hmm. As, and there's unvarnished truth bouncing back and forth between octogenarians. It's something to see. It's something to hear. Right. Um, and I, I think there's love there. I'm sure there's love there in the midst of that. But there's this sort of unvarnished thing that you know, a little varnish isn't a bad thing, right? It's, it's, it's nice to have somebody try to frame something up to you when they say something hard and say, look, man, I made this mistake too. Don't make this mistake. It will ruin your life or it'll mess up your life versus you're just being an idiot. Right now. <laughs> you know, both yeah. may be true. Yeah, both right. may be true. But um, truth without love is like surgery without anesthetic, right? It, it still does the same thing. It just hurts a lot more than it <laughs> yeah. needs to. So. No one yeah. can trigger you like your siblings. I'll tell you that. <laughs> no doubt, but it's, you guys have you guys have controlled yourself. Yeah, well I, I so guess far, so. So, so far, yeah. yeah. Um, Go it's, ahead, Sam. It's saying you love somebody without explicitly saying you love them, like apologizing without saying sorry. Um, you I, can. I think you need to say it at yeah. some point. I mean, if you don't say it every single time you see them, which is still a good idea. I, I'm just saying, love is an action word, mm-hmm. and so yep. there are some actions that go with loving. If I just say, eh. I'll, you know, if I have a, a harsh conversation with my wife and I try to end it with I love you to cover up everything else I said, that's not love, although I said it. Yeah. So I, you say it and you do it, and it should be both. I've got, okay, so I wanted to ask some questions that I was recommended to ask. So the first one I wanted Should to, I be afraid? Oh, uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. Although, I guess I don't know. But uh, the first one is, I've heard one of your kids has purchased a sign for your office that is titled, Go Big or Go Home. Why is that? It's actually my sister, Gwen, bought that sign. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have the so wrong, that's my right. source. Yeah, it's... Needs help. It's your uh, wife, actually. So. Thank you, source. <laughs> well, thank you for calling her out on the no, podcast. No, no, yeah, no. We'll, so cut, we'll that cut that out. We'll to hear. <laughs> for dozens to hear. Dozens. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> Go big or go home. Yes, can you explain that? That that was, I I spoke at my dad's funeral, and that Mm -hmm. was the theme of my eulogy, was go big or go home. Hmm. Because everything my dad did, he tried to do really big. So he would host block parties uh, in our backyard growing up. Nice. And they were, there was a metal trash can back when we would eat food in metal trash cans and drink out of a garden hose uh, that would be on an open fire and he would have hundreds of ears of sweet corn in there. And he would just have massive bashes like that. He would do Hmm. very big things. We would have, when he would get his tax return back, we would have huge feasts in my house in a way that we never, ever ate. And he always did things very, very big. And I, I think I've imitated some of that. And my sister, who knew, knew, my, knew my dad the same way as I did, bought that sign for me. It's a, it sits on my desk. Uh, and and I, I do think that if you're going to do something, we talked about my son Jordan before, yeah. you do it with zeal. And you just say, we are, we're going to go all out or we're not going to do it. Because right. if it's worth doing, it's typically worth doing big. And there's, not, there's times for subtlety and there's times for being measured in what you do. But... I, I want to. I want to. I, I want. I don't want to be bored. I really don't. I want to be involved in things that yeah. are that are difficult and then have great reward in them. And and if if I know if I'm if I'm imitating my dad and I have a big party at my house and everybody has fun, that's kind of cool. Because the difference between a medium party and a big party is not is just more food, right? And it's <laughs> you know maybe a little louder music. I don't know, but it, it's. It, I, 
I think I'm like my dad that way. And I spoke of him. I never heard him use that phrase, hmm. but he would always do things uh, fairly big. And so yeah. I think I just got that from him, whether I was consciously thinking about it or not. Would you okay. say? Okay. Would you say that you've done that in frying potatoes? Um, I do enjoy deep frying foods. Is that right? Can you yes. describe that that uh, interest or hobby? Um, I, I do like feeding large groups of people. Like if I'm cooking dinner for the four kids who still live with me and my wife, that's that's okay. I'll do it if somebody needs me to jump in. But if you're going to cook for people, I want to see I want to see a lot of food. I, to me, just <laughs> the, the the challenge of making massive amounts of food is something. I enjoy. I have deep fried as many as I think sixty-five pounds of potatoes into French fries in one right. party before, Excellent. and so my kids bought me a very large deep fryer right. for my birthday or Father's Day or something one year, and I thought this is cool. It's got two baskets, and you and you you lower in uh, Oreos or deep fried ice cream yes. or whatever the whatever the the feast is, and and so in small groups, I've hauled that thing in the back of my van, and we've had big feasts in small groups and cookouts and. Fourth uh, of July parties, and yeah, it's just a lot of fun. You also have a uh, ice maker in your basement that makes ninety pounds of ice. Is that correct? I believe that's correct. Now, yes. what's the what is the? Are you a ice fanatic? Yeah, it's it's a fanatic a fanaticism with ice. With ice, can't remember what that medical term is, but no, um, <laughs> I, I I'm big on value. Okay, so when okay, we, big on value. When we were remodeling our kitchen. I looked at what these little tiny ice makers cost that you put underneath your counter. Right, right. And it was a ridiculous amount of money. So I got curious, and I went to a restaurant supply website, and I realized I could get the big ice machine that goes underneath a bar and produces, I think it's 100, you know, something like 100 pounds of ice okay, a day. Okay, okay. And it was actually less. And so I thought, if we're going to spend that kind of money. Yeah. So I dragged it into my basement. I had it delivered to a local business because I needed a truck dock. And I, I, I went and picked it up from that business, and I took it home, and I figured out how to hook up the water line in the basement and I just I hooked up an ice machine and I it, I was I got a lot of looks but I a lot of people who gave me looks say hey can I have some ice now right, so yes, I, yes. one of us was you know one of us was right there I so. think we can all see the value to especially with a big family having a ton of ice yes. man so you love the great american hot dog joint yes. so, sell me on vince's What's so special about this place? I mean, come it, on. It's special, and you guys, I think you know the story, but it's special because I couldn't have it when I was younger. So I grew up in, in Monroe, a town called Monroe, Michigan, and from our house, you had to drive down this one particular road to go into the city every time. There was, there was a river there, and the road ran parallel to the river, and there was a, a little dumpy place that's still there called Vince's Hot Dogs. And uh, what happened is in, when I was growing up, I was wait, you were waiting for me to start a sentence when I was your age or when I was young. <laughs> Cars didn't have air conditioning. So in the summertime, right. we would drive, and, and this building is like 20 feet from the road, really close. And all you could do is when you drove by Vince's all summer long is, is smell the hot, the chili dogs mm -hmm. wafting through your car. Now, I was the oldest of, I mentioned I was the oldest of five kids. We did not have a ton of money. Going to restaurants was an incredibly rare event for us. So the idea of rolling in with the, the big vehicle uh, with five kids and getting a bunch of chili dogs, that just didn't happen. 
So when I got my driver's license and I started working and making money, one of the first places I made a beeline to was Vince's. I cranked that window down a third of the way. They put the tray on there and I just, I got onion rings. I got the root beer. I got the whole thing. And it was satisfying. Uh, yeah. Now, now Sharon says that these hot, these chili dogs are nothing special <laughs> and I don't agree, but, but quite frankly, the fact that I was denied those dogs for so many years. Right. So if I'm driving from here in Toledo to Detroit to a baseball game, we stop and we get chili dogs on the way. And it's just a few miles off the expressway. And, and uh, so, but, but I do think some of the appeal of those dogs is I was denied something yeah. a, a, as a young man. So, What's the comparison to Rudy's? I'm not a Rudy's guy. No? No, no, not a Rudy's guy. Geno's pa- Paco's, I can take or leave. Geno's Pizza, I can I can never have another Geno's Pizza and be just fine. Mm, I mm. think I get what you're saying with Geno's, but, yeah. but Rudy's, I just feel like they get the simple stuff the best. Yeah, I... Noah's with Noah's with his his father-in-law. That's There's something bad. about the smell a smell of Rudy's that uh, is is too close to the smell of an armpit. That's true. I guess I've other you know Noah's landscaping there it is. is the only time he's ever had it. When when you're when you're working hard, you know, and you mm-hmm. all you're dreaming of is food, and you're limited, and you don't eat, and then all of a sudden you eat a ton of food. Anything tastes great. That's probably why. Yeah. Um, another question I had, Mike. Was it's Rudy's attorneys? They're on the phone for us. <laughs> <laughs> Can you please uh, edit that out, retract that, Noah? Thank you. So you, well, okay, you have several different. Well, so you've got the ice maker, you've got the fryer, <laughs> you've also got a bun coffee pot, or I'm sorry, bun coffee maker, which is like commercial grade. What's the multiple? You know, what do you call yeah, what is it? Four multiple? slots for the pots? Is there's that two? Pots. Oh, there's two? only two. two. All right. Six. Well, <laughs> what's the what's the desire there? I mean, I will correct you if you're hyperbolic. Okay, I just you're, you're, <laughs> that's you're, understandable. You can't, exa- you can't exaggerate. Yeah. No, I uh, we do we host two Bible studies in a small group right. in our house, and uh, coffee works. And um, we 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 redesigned our house. We redid the kitchen. We put a coffee bar in there, and uh, I thought, well. How quick are these things make coffee? Mm-hmm. In like three minutes, you can get a pot of coffee. So we've much better than the, warm. yeah, much better than the home, you know, regular Mister Coffee. Yeah, I just caffeinated family members is to my advantage typically. So I'm <laughs> I'm all for it. Excellent. And you know, we even when we host a birthday party at our house now, we end up with you know 30 people in the house in a hurry. So mm-hmm. it's just we host we host a lot of big things in our house so it's some yes. of it, you kind of think like a restaurant sometimes where you just say right. a lot of restaurants you walk into there's not 30 people in there eating and so in some ways what we're tasked with if we're going to have practice hospitality in our home is yeah. to think like a restaurant in some ways and and try to have uh, you, you invest even in the size of your house i mean you you it, once you're if you're committed to hospitality it changes your needs beyond what your family needs sometimes. And you kind of flex up when you have a bunch of people in and you can invite another four people without it being awkward. Hmm. You know, you can have, you can bring a lot of people in. So uh, one thing I learned in this church is, is we're called to be hospitable. And and so we've tried Mm -hmm. to, tried to make sure that we can accommodate more people in our home any way we can. I've noticed also with the cups that you guys have, I feel like there are a lot of good restaurant tricks that you've, you know, kind of I've yet to receive tips, though. Yet to receive. Yet tips to receive from you guys. tips. No, nothing. I'll remember that. <laughs> no, you. No, you won't. <laughs> I won't. Uh, just wanted to pivot here. Um, I'd like to talk about your career and your job in pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because I know when I, you know, was going through trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I spoke with you and it was a, such an encouraging conversation of like, hey, I was in that boat too. And getting out of that, you know, just, I guess the career journey, why are why, you went to school for pharmacy? To be correct? a pharmacy. Yeah. Pharmacist, yeah. You got a, did you get a bachelor's? A, it was a bachelor's degree at that okay. time. Yeah. Um, and you went to UT? I did. Okay. And um, just kind of, so you are one of the rare people I've heard of who actually went to school for the thing that they're in. Well, so sort of. Yeah. I've been practicing as a pharmacist in over 20 years. Uh, I guess so, that's true. Yeah. Um, I, I was working in my first job in a hospital, and I didn't like it, and I thought it was because of the particular hospital. So I quit, and my wife was working full-time, so I, there wasn't much risk in changing jobs. Hmm. And I took a job in another hospital, and I hated it even more. And then I, what I realized was the profession that I had spent time pursuing, I didn't enjoy. And I didn't know what to do because I had a 30, exactly 30-minute 30 drive from that hospital to my house every day after three months of working there, knowing I didn't like it. And what had changed is my wife was pregnant. We had two car payments and a house payment. And I thought, my drives home for 30 minutes were, okay, I have two car payments. I have a house payment. My wife is not going to work more than one day a week once we have a baby. And I have 40 more years to do something that I hate. <laughs> and I just drive home every day and think about that for 30 minutes. No matter how loud, loud I turned the radio, I still thought about right, that. Yeah. And so I, I think I went through what a lot of guys in their 20s go through, where they know what their gifts are, what God has gifted them with, and they, they do what sometimes accountants say, get something that's directionally accurate. You try to get yourself pointed northeast, and then you realize, <laughs> well, it's more north-northeast or east-northeast, and you spend mm -hmm. your 20s sort of tweaking the narrative, and then you kind of get to 30-ish, and you kind of launch from there. But you do spend a lot of time trying to get your bearings in your 20s. Hmm. And that was me. I, I, I took this job in home healthcare, which was a very new industry. When I did, it was a startup company. I was the 10th employee that they had. And I loved it. It was chaos every day. And my problem-solving skills were as or more important than the clinical skills I learned when I became a pharmacist. And I just loved it because it was, you had to, it was like somebody threw a jigsaw puzzle on the floor every day, hid five of the pieces and you had to figure it out. Hmm. And that was what I enjoyed doing. And I found the routine of being a traditional pharmacist less interesting to me. A lot of people I know are incredibly good at it and I'm grateful for all of them. It just wasn't me, but I kind of invested a lot and had a lot of stuff going on. And, you know, it was just staring in the mirror every day saying, I don't want to go to work today. And so I had to figure that out. And mm. so I just, but, but it's, it is a way I can encourage guys in their twenties and just say, look, man, you're, you're still figuring this out. Don't right. panic, work it out, figure out what you're good at and what you're not good at, what you're gifted, what's God's calling you to do. And then tweak the plan a little bit until you get, you hit your sweet spot. And, and it, sometimes it takes three or four attempts to do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. And a loving wife will get that. And you know, if the, if they're still, if your wife is still living indoors and, and has food, most likely she'll be gracious <laughs> with you, but it is, it, you know, work for men is incredibly important. And I, yeah, people, absolutely. I don't care how much they pay you. If it's a job you hate and you're not, you hate it cause you're not good at it. I don't think it matters. I think you got to eventually figure out where you come home and say, I'm grateful for the paycheck, but I'm grateful that I'm contributing to something in a meaningful way. Hmm. And we're all trying to find that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I think what you say, twenties, you know, man, it is a time of figuring things out. Um, but another question I had was how, how quickly after starting in pharmaceuticals did you find, cause you're 
Well, I mean, what position do you have right now specifically? It's a, I have oversight over a, what's called home infusion. So we make IV solutions for patients in their home. Hmm. And I work for a hospital system that's based out of Chicago. And it's right. my responsibility to, to manage pharmacies that are in the same markets where our hospitals are. So if you're on an IV in the hospital and your insurance company kicks you out, which is usually what happens, and that IV still needs to continue, we'll deliver those IV solutions in a nurse to your home and continue to administer them when you're home. So mm -hmm. that's, I oversee the operations for this hospital system that does that. So. Okay, got it. So you're, you're over other people as well in, the, mm -hmm. in your career, mm -hmm. um, as well as an elder at the church, as well as a father of 11 kids, as well as a husband. Um, yeah, just similarities between career and home or are there times when you lead differently within the career and you make it a point to do that or does it kind of blend? I don't know. I'm just kind of it, It's far more that. similar than it's different. So if I think of my life as a three-legged stool, it is my leadership in the church, my leadership in the home, my leadership at work. And the beauty of my leadership at work is for whatever reason in a rapidly growing company that was just starting up, I was given leadership opportunities in my mid to late 20s. And don't think I was ready for it. Don't think I was ready to be a husband and father either. I'm not sure I was ready to be an elder also. But it, the, the fact that in my 20s, I had to start leading people was incredibly helpful to me because hmm. I just got to make some mistakes and had some people who were very gracious as I made mistakes. And I just sort of worked through that because everything that you learn about people and how to motivate them and how to lead them and how to correct them and how to love them applies in every situation. So, you know, it was, I made a lot of mistakes in all three venues early mm -hmm. on, but I was given that opportunity at a very young age in each case. Uh, elder in my 30s, uh, husband, father in my 20s, and a, a manager at work in my, in my 20s. And, uh, the, and the hard part is, you know, y you guys have friends and most likely your friends all have something in common with you. So the way you kind of find friends. But in the workplace with different skill sets, the more complicated the workplace, the more different the people are. And the hardest thing to learn as a leader is how hard it is to lead people who don't think like you. So when I was in my early days of leading in the workplace, I would say to my drivers, look, I, these delivery vehicles are a mess. I need you to treat this vehicle like it was your own personal vehicle. Hmm. <coughs> yeah, no problem. And I said to him, just, just treat it like your own vehicle. Well, one day I walked out in the parking lot and I looked at their personal vehicles and they looked just like the, my delivery vehicles. <laughs> and I thought, okay, that was bad advice because I try to keep my car clean and they don't. But I said, oh, keep this van like your vehicle. And they did exactly what I asked them to do. Right. And so... What I learned quickly is the hardest thing to do in leadership is to lead people who don't think like you do. If somebody thinks like you do, they can almost read your mind. But mm -hmm. when it's someone who's different than you, it requires you to really dig deep and understand them. And so, of course, any man who gets married is now leading a woman who doesn't think anything like him. And, they're, and, and so that's the ultimate example of leading someone out like you, because you can hang out. No, no guy in the church has ever come up to me and said, hey, I'm having problems with my friends. What should I do? That's happened zero times <laughs> since I've been an elder. But the number of times guys had asked me for advice about marriage and their wives, and women, I'm sure, within women's ministry, asking the same questions to women about their, about their husbands goes both ways. That's hard. Mm -hmm. And you suddenly find yourself under the roof with someone who doesn't think like you do at all. And when you were living under a roof, and if you had sisters, 
there was conflict, but you had your own room, and you know there was there was there was you know yeah whatever you're weird, and you, you kind of go no 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 now you're in the same bedroom with someone you're married to, yep. and you have this dynamic where you have to figure things out together, and you don't think the same. And there's no better way to learn how to lead someone who doesn't think like you than to get married and be a husband. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's Sam. Do you have? I'd like to move into marriage, but do you have a thought or anything? Nope. Um, just with marriage, Sharon has said to me <laughs> that you have been very purposeful. To how create... long did you talk to my wife? Oh, <laughs> I, it was a good conversation. You know, I got to do my research on people that are. I know. Out. I walked away when I saw you talking to each other. So <laughs> there's no upside for me being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. He, she has said that you have been very purposeful to create fun date nights and surprises for her that can get, um, you know, that can become a challenge when children increase and children have increased in your case. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, over the years, I don't know how many years have you guys been married now? 32. 32. Mm-hmm. So a lot of wisdom there, a lot of challenges, I'm sure, throughout all of that. But specifically when it comes to romance, when it comes to, you know, keeping a desire alive for your wife and just, you know, being purposeful to create fun times with her. You know, this is something David has said recently. It's like, he even said it, I think the last day he preached was being a leader is being fun. Mm-hmm. And I rem- I still, is still sticking with me. I'm like, there's so much truth to that. And that is so true. But so how did you, fu- how did you navigate that within marriage and with uh, specifically with Sharon? Well, I, I think there's a couple things that, that, that drive me in that. And the one is seeing examples of couples who do raise their children. The last kid moves out, they're empty nesters, and they have nothing in common. And I've seen marriages that have gone before mine where that's been the case. And and children can be a temporary wedge. In our case, it's temporary for the past 30 years, right? But um, where, where you can have children provide enough of a buffer that you don't deal with your relationship with your spouse. And so... I, I believe from a very early time being married, I begged, borrowed, and steal and asked every favor I could of grandparents to watch our kids so we could get away, either for a dinner for a couple hours or for years we had one night away a year and we would just get the grandparents and they would divide up our kids and take them. And it is important that you regularly find a time, especially after you have children, yeah. to, to sit there and have a time where the children are not around you. And you say, how you doing? And sometimes it's not in the first five minutes or the first five hours that you get into the deep stuff. But every couple has a story about the fun they had while they were dating. And the fun took on different forms, but you had fun. No one should stop having fun with their spouse because now they're married. Like I landed you, now I caught you, or, you know, we're, we're, here, we're in now, we're locked in. There's no reason to do it. People were having a goal when they were dating or they were driving towards something and they would spend time together and they would talk on the phone for hours and hours. And sometimes it's a grunt in the morning, morning. And then once you get married and there's not much communication at all, they have to fight that. Mm-hmm. And to say that that's not a possibility is, is to believe a lie. So we have to be purposeful as we have kids old enough to babysit. It's become much easier to do that. Uh, anyone who knows my wife and me knows that she's the fun one between the two of us. That's not... <laughs> So it, it does have to be more thought out for me hmm. than it is for her. She's better at having fun. She just is better at having fun than I am. But I still, in the midst of not being as good at it, understand the value of fun and that it takes different forms. So we were 
riding a jet ski together in a few weeks ago in the Gulf of Mexico. And we were at a, con- a couple concerts in the past year and, you know, till our ears were ringing. And, and so we've done some different things that were really fun. And sometimes I've done surprises. Surprises sometimes go well and sometimes they don't. Yeah. Um, you can do more surprises the less your kids are relying on you because your wife usually has the burden to figure out how the kids are going to be taken care of during a surprise, yet she has no notice of the fact that she has to get the kids taken care of. So either you're very good at working out the details or you don't surprise your wife very often. Mm-hmm. It's got to it's got to be one or the other. But um, you want to be purposeful about what your about what your relationship's gonna take to not just maintain but to grow. Because you don't want to get to a place where the kids are all gone and you realize that they were just buffering and masking a problem that you had in your marriage. And so you want a strong marriage till one of you takes their last breath. And it should be getting constantly stronger. And that is real work. And when you're dating, you think, well, why would that ever be work to spend time together? And it's like all the other questions we don't think are real before we're married. But then you say, look, if you can chart a path in the early years of marriage where you are just making a point of being together and doing things with no other distractions, that would include your phones because what you can do is you can get rid of the kids and you see two people on their phones right. in a restaurant all yeah. the time, right? So sometimes you have rules about where the phones are going to be. Well, what if one of the kids falls down the steps and the babysitter has to call us? You know, you can go down all these different roads. But at some point, you have to say, how am I going to remove as many distractions as possible to spend time with my wife? And you just have to be purposeful about it. If you, you found a way to brush your teeth today, I hope you guys all found time to brush your teeth this yes. morning, yeah. at least once today, you always find a way to do what's important to you. And if you didn't do something today, if you didn't read your Bible, if you didn't pray for somebody, if you didn't do these things, it, it's ultimately because it wasn't that important. And something else more important, sleep, whatever, uh, took, hmm. took precedent. So if, if you say... You know, what's the next thing you're doing together with your wife? And if you don't have that answer right now, that may mean it's not important to you. So it's, okay, what's the next thing? Yeah. And little, you know, nights out like that are a lot like vacations. Half the value is the anticipation. So being able to say, hey, we're only five nights away from getting to go to this restaurant that we love that has really good chili dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Rudy's baby. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you love your wife, Nick? <laughs> Rudy's. Um, but, but it's it's uh, the anticipation is yeah. is half of the value yeah. of a night out. And I can't wait to go out with you. You can send a text message. And I can't wait to head to Rudy's. I can't even say it without laughing. <laughs> Spontaneity is a little overhyped. Well, it, it is. Although it I, has, would, I wouldn't rule it out. Oh I, yeah, yeah, definitely. I, has I, its place, but you know, but. It dep- you gotta know your wife well enough to know how well that's gonna go. If you mm-hmm. create so much anxiety in her life. That you, <laughs> you might, you might, your your two one plus one might be negative one in that one. And you, you might make yeah. a net negative in your relationship if you cause too much stress. Yeah. So yeah, I know your wife, and, yes. and then Absolutely. make the make the right decision. Right. Um, I'm curious about um, just within this same vein, are there habits that you have that, or even just daily habits, things that you do every day that aren't necessarily. Um, I don't know, scriptural, I guess, but you see as beneficial to either your marriage or being disciplined or, um, you know, keeping in check with your children, keeping in check with uh, elders in the church, mm-hmm. church leadership, whatever it might be. I'm just thinking of habits specifically. Do you have any habits that you keep that, you know, you would under- encourage other men to kind of think about or at least imitate somehow? I don't know if I would adv- advocate my specific habits, but what what I find is that decision-making exhausts me after a while. 
Like if I have to make a number of decisions, work, church, home, yeah. family, that they exhaust me. But I know I need to have a certain amount of energy to make those decisions every day. When I'm low on energy, I make bad decisions. I make rash decisions. I make decisions that are quick and easy versus thoughtful. So I try to make, and as I get older, I have less energy than I used to. So what I try to do is make more mundane decisions as automatic as possible so that I can save the fu brain function that I have in the course of a day for the bigger decisions. So I will eat the same thing for breakfast and lunch almost every day. Huh. Very rare really? do I make an exception. What is that? Well, yeah, what are the meals? <laughs> this, now I'm becoming even less healthy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, everyone will it's, be curious. It's oatmeal and Greek yogurt for breakfast. Okay, okay. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's <laughs> three hard-boiled or over-medium eggs Okay, and an apple for lunch. And it, so three eggs and an apple? Yeah. Huh. And okay. there's nothing special about what that is. So <laughs> as we're editing, we can think through that one. But um, it, yeah. I, what I'm saying is I'm not going to spend time thinking about what I'm going to eat. Hmm. And, okay. and yeah. so it's very much the same thing. I try, to, I try to systematize boring, mundane decisions as much as I can because I know I'm going to have to make probably five to ten bigger decisions in the course of a day. And what do we do here? Do we spend money on this? Do we do this with that kid? Uh, which initiatives and projects at work do I try to move forward? Scheduling out my next trip for work. And, and I want to do is just preserve as much energy as I can for the important decision. It doesn't really matter what I eat every day. So let's mm. just make it automatic. Yeah. And then, and then not even like, what do I want for lunch today? Hmm. You know, done. There's nothing. To, yeah. There's yeah. nothing to ask myself. And so... Um, exceptions, of course. Yeah, of course. I'm meeting yep. a man for breakfast tomorrow. We, I might not have oatmeal and Greek yogurt <laughs> at the restaurant. But it, it's, it, I just find that mundane decisions, if I could just check them off, yeah. I, I, can, I can say, I just want to spend my time pondering the really big decisions I have to make today. Absolutely. I think that's huge with just being a man. It's like, just simplify it. You know, you, you're going to have responsibilities that, you're going to have to take care of elsewhere. You don't need to set aside time to think about, you know, what you're going to put on this today or that. I appreciate that in terms of my job for having a uniform. It's mm -hmm. like, I don't have to think about it. It's on to the next thing. I think that's why Steve Jobs said he dressed yes, the same. Exactly. Every day. I, I don't want anybody to make Steve Ma Jobs their role model. Right. But in that way, I think he, he said, I just, I think I'm going to wear, what do you wear, a black turtleneck or yeah, something? Yeah, right? jeans. A pair of jeans. New balances. Yeah, yeah. So it just, I do change up the clothes a little bit. <laughs> the food, not so much. So. <laughs> um, yeah. Sam, did you want to ask a question? Yeah. So venturing back a little bit. So you work in pharmaceuticals. Um, I've seen many people get taken over by conspiracy theories and just like removing their view of God being the center of their universe to something else. But there's also very real fears out there. Uh, what's your take on just big pharma quotations on that? See, I didn't think Joe Rogan would be here today. <laughs> and and, and Turns now out he is. It so I was channeling him. <laughs> but we get no. all the good and all the bad with having a big pharmaceutical industry in our country. Mm -hmm. and, and that in the hmm. end, expensive drugs fund research. Does it also fund obscene profits at times? Absolutely. Most of the medications I work with in a given day are generic. So mm -hmm. they're much cheaper, much cheaper for the insurance company, much cheaper for the patient, 
much cheaper for the pharmacy to purchase in the first place, but they're the result of somebody upstream developing that drug as a brand name and probably making obscene profits in the midst of it. So it's a two-edged sword. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, people talk about what people pay for the same uh, pharmaceuticals overseas. I think as a country, we subsidize other countries' yeah. healthcare in that way. And so is there a lot we could do differently? Yeah, because money's the motivator. So if someone loves money mm -hmm. and they're greedy, then that can be abused. And so like anything else, when there's money involved, somebody will abuse it. Absolutely. You have to frame it up and know there's good and bad. Could we make tweaks to it? Absolutely. Is there too much money in it sometimes? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Am I grateful for a lot of the things that have been developed? Absolutely. Cool. I'm just going to, you know, I'm looking to back to what Jordan had kind of mentioned to me, which is, um, you know, not focusing too much on the past, but also into the future. Are you specifically, or what specifically would you be looking forward to in terms of church growth? Uh, you know, your involvement as an elder, how long have you been an elder specifically actually just offhand real quick? I think it's been about 15 years. Okay. So yeah. you've been, you've been, you know, in, involved in a lot of, a lot of church, you know, things going on in the church within that, that um, you've helped make decisions on or whatnot. Um, but what, in terms of the future, you know, I guess, what are your thoughts? Are you excited about anything specifically? Are you looking forward to God working in any specific areas, whether that's, you know, planting a church or whether that's here in our own body? I don't know, just your thoughts on the future of the church. I'm encouraged about the future of our church because of the charge that Pastor David has led, who said that young people will be given real things to do this in this church. Qualified young people will be given things to do in this church at a very early age. So when I walk into church early, if I get here before Sunday school starts, what I notice is most of the people are less than half my age who are getting ready for a worship service. And I have, wow. cho I have children who worship in this church, and I have grandchildren who worship in this church. So I care about the future of this church at multiple levels. One is an elder and my, my desire to care for the flock and love them. But I also, at a more selfish level, I want to see my family have a great place to worship. We have a path forward when we let qualified young people do real things in our midst. And the old guys like me step out of the way and let people have real responsibility. I mentioned before that I'm grateful for my experience as a leader that I got in my 20s. I want, I want you guys to experience that. Yeah. I yeah. want young people to do real things, and we're seeing young people in this church do real things. So I am very encouraged. I, we have to trust God, and it will be him that determines mm -hmm. uh, the quote-unquote success of this church. But, but I, I think the fact that young people get to do real things means a lot to me right now. And I'm very encouraged by that. Yeah, absolutely. I, the <clears throat> other thing I wanted to talk about too, or wanted to mention and touch base on was the, um, just the way that you and David have kind of spearheaded exactly what you're talking about right now, which is ministry towards the youth. I was in, or had the privilege of being with you guys when we had small group at you, uh, David's yeah. house mm -hmm. and you were leading it, it was with him. Um, but, in terms of that, just what led you to be so committed to the youth? Was it something you guys saw or recognized back in that time? I know you're saying it right now, you know, you have to step aside, but did, was that a realization you made back then? You know, just kind of, because I know that there are many churches that either don't have a youth group or they don't see a value in 
building up exactly what you're talking about. But I guess, you know, what led you to be committed to that? Uh, Pastor David drove it. Hmm. I, I okay. certainly got the vision from him, but he drove it. He said, look, we want the youth, whether it's our worship style, you know, 20 years ago, 18 right. years ago, right. to plugging in young people in, in real roles in our church. He, he led that charge. I, I think there's always the risk that someone young gets with because of a lack of experience, but we've tried to make sure we provide the training and we've come alongside the young people in our church and, and tell them, we expect you to do big things right. when you're still young in this church. So a lot of, we talked about this with parenting and discipline before, a lot of this is expectation. You can expect a two-year-old to unload a dishwasher and you can expect a 22-year-old to lead worship mm-hmm. or even younger. And, and I, think it's, I think it's that approach I, I think I inherited that from Pastor David. Mm. Not sure I would have got there on my own, but I've seen the fruit of it. I've seen it work. Uh, we had a, a baby shower in my house recently for my daughter, and one of our relatives who does not attend our church came in, and she was taken aback by how many young people were at that shower, that it wasn't a bunch of grandmothers and great aunts, although they were there as well. But it was, wow. And I think most people who visit this church see young people who are engaged in a real way. And when we give young people opportunities to lead, we encourage the other young people who are not yet leading. And we say to them, this can be you. So it's not someone my age with a guitar or playing some interest instrument on a platform. It's seeing somebody in his early 20s on there. So the teenage boy says, I want to be up there someday. Yep. Because my kids can't relate to me because it's too far away but they can relate to guys in their 20s and they can say, hmm. I want to be him. I want to be this mm-hmm. guy. I want to be finding my first house. I want to be getting married. I want to have kids. And so the half generation between me and my kids is a very influential generation on my kids right now. And I'm so grateful for it because young people in their 20s doing real things in the church makes my kids in their, in their teens say, I'm going to do that. I want to be that guy. So I'm grateful for it for a multitude of reasons. Yeah, and I'm certainly grateful for the yeah, wisdom that David and, and you both put, you know, out there for us uh, when coming up through that training as well, or through that small group. And yeah, just seeing a lot of the, the benefits that you guys, you know, you clearly put the work in and now we are growing as a result of that, which is praise be to God for that. It's yeah. amazing. Um Sam, did you have a... Yeah, so off of that, um, David obviously has talked a decent amount, and well, all of the elders have talked a lot, as, especially as we had the REPC graduation just recently. How do you look at raising up elders in the church and not just pastors? Uh, I think people who are faithful with little things will be faithful with big things. So when someone's a good Sunday school teacher, yeah. when they do a great job as an usher, when they... Uh, the, what I do in the workplace is when I give someone a title that's a leadership title, the title's the last thing to get there. In the end, all the title does is recognize how the person's already leading. So you don't need to have the title of elder in a church to be a spiritual father. In fact, that should never be a restriction on anyone. So if I see someone who's being a spiritual father in every sense of that word, then I'm encouraged that that person might, that man might be a good elder someday. And so I think it's opportunities to get progressively more responsibility in the church, which could include uh, being an elder at some point as well. And so, look, 
you call people to lead and you see who steps up and not everyone steps up. Yeah. Not everyone does it. Yeah. Doing the work, doing like just doing what God calls you to do. And then through that, God will make you grow because you're obeying, you know? Right. It, it is a leap of faith every time you start to, because what if somebody doesn't want to listen to me? What if this? You can think of all the reasons why you don't lead. But you see somebody just start leading and makes mistakes, but fail forward in the midst of doing mm-hmm. it and be open to counsel with advice on how to not make that same mistake the next time. You have someone who could be a, a significant leader in the church, regardless of the title. The uh, You've given a um, a exercise, maybe it's called, I'm not sure what the name would be, but you had said there's a, there's five different types of guys, you know, who are, who are below you or some, or who, who will work for you or be at a job. Can you explain that? I'm butchering it, but. Yeah, this is where rehearsing probably would have helped. That's right. Yes. Um, (laughs) There's a tool that I was taught as a leader in the workplace called the Unken Freedom Scale. And it talks about um, people underneath you that take on increasing levels of independence and responsibility. And there's sort of five levels. And the lowest one is a perfectly obedient person who just does what they're told, but doesn't have any thoughts beyond that. And that's a one or a five. I never remember which. And then there's the the five at the other end, who's somebody who just takes initiative and then occasionally checks in with you and lets them know what you do. And in the end, you want to lead as many fives as you can. People who can think (laughs) and work independently and make good decisions and then just sort of periodically check in and give you an update on what they've done. Uh, those people, I, I always say in the workplace, I had this conversation with somebody at work today as we're recruiting for a new le- local leader. I said, look, we hire good people, we look like we're geniuses. We hire bad people and we look like idiots and we're no different. So it is, you know, hmm. y- you, do, you do want to put people in a role where they're gifted so that you have an opportunity for success. But you also want to give them increasing levels of independence. Some will rise and some won't. But in the end, if you micromanage people and say, you got to tell me everything you do, you might as well do it yourself. That's no, that person's not that much help to you. Yeah. But, but you see somebody start to have some good ideas, you say, why don't you just run with that one and check in with me next week? Those are the most valuable people you can have as a leader. Hmm. So uh, some of leadership is giving people direction, but some of it's teaching them to give direction so they can be leading people. And then you can have uh, you can have leaders of ten and leaders of a hundred, and you know mm-hmm. it, it, you can you can have groups of pe- you can oversee a massive number of people. But if they're fives and they're independent thinkers, that's a very low burden. It was what Jethro called Moses yes, to do. Right. He said, "You got to get somebody. You got to have <laughs> yeah. have somebody who takes care of this stuff." I think it was President Eisenhower who said, "Every decision a president of the United States makes is a difficult one because if it was an easy one, somebody below him would have answered it." Hmm. So. What, even as a general, President Eisenhower acknowledged the fact that, that, uh, that by definition, the higher up you climb, the more difficult the decisions are because, right. Lord willing, you've put in other people to deal with the ones that aren't as difficult. So that goes back to that energy thing, that decision-making thing again, where it's like the more responsibility you have, the harder the decisions are and the more impact they have, the more risk there are, they yeah. are. There's also a great risk in giving people more independence because... What new leaders don't often understand is everyone else suddenly controls your reputation. Everybody under you that who does true. anything good yeah. or bad so, uh, controls your reputation. So, Nick, when you help me produce some videos for something I'm doing, I get, oh, Mike, that was great. I'm like, do you understand 
<laughs> what, what Nick did, you understand what hardworking people did to make that night look like I knew what I was doing and look like I was doing something. And, but if you just plug the right people in, you've solved half of your issues as a leader. That's why who you marry matters. Yeah. And you know, you see the hot girl and you think, okay, nothing wrong with her being attractive, but would she submit to you? Would she run with what you want to run with? Or right. would her agenda always be different than yours? That's when a guy's dating, it's very hard to get a guy thinking about that. And a father will sometimes say, I don't want you dating that girl. And you got to listen. You got to teach young guys to listen because that's their vows there. I can fire somebody in the workplace, but <laughs> you taking vows, that's for life. And, and so um, <laughs> you're dating, it's a, it's a very serious thing. It, it, it becomes, you know, wow, is this going to work? And you guys all had those thoughts before yeah, you got married. Yeah. I, yep. I think at one level, so did I. But it, it's really important to say, are we going to be able to, the two become one? Are we going to be one or are we constantly pulling each other apart to try to be two again? And so it's incredibly important who you marry. You, um, yeah, absolutely. You touched a little bit on um, Sadie on a Hill when it comes to, if you need a drink of water, no problem. Um, but when it comes to that event, so how involved were you? You were the MC. So at the last minute, it was decided at the last I was the minute. MC, okay, yes. got it. Well, hey, it was, nobody noticed. I had, I had like 18 hours of notice. It, was, it wasn't the last hey. minute. Yeah. Um, Did very well. Yeah, it was, I think everybody agrees it was. Excellent. Everybody had a great time. It was a fun thing to do. It was, it a, was fun a lot time. of work, but it was fun. Right. Um, have you, you know, I feel like you're very comfortable public speaking. Has that been something that has been easy for you? You know, what does that even look like in your mind looking you, back on you it? You know, I read a quote from Johnny Carson, who used to have a late night show before you That's guys right. were born. Yeah. And he said, I'm great in front of 10 million. I'm terrible in front of 10. And I think, I've never spoken to 10 million people, but I think that is one way you could describe me. That in some ways, I'm more comfortable in front of large crowds than I am in an informal setting at a social gathering. So I, I have weaknesses like everybody else has weaknesses. Knowing that I'm carrying casual conversation in a social night is one of the most difficult things that I have to do. <laughs> but get in front of a bunch of people and just starting to talk, yeah. it's not that hard for me because I control the conversation. It's a monologue, it's not a dialogue. Mm. So I... I just don't find it that difficult. I find it far more difficult to have casual conversations with people in a room. Mm. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Sam, did you have any thoughts? We're currently sitting at what? 143. An hour 45. So hopefully we don't, we're not taking up too much of your time, Mike. No, not at all. Okay, good, good. Uh, everyone's sleeping on the other end right <laughs> now. This is a, they'll start that podcast That's at six right. tomorrow morning when they get up. Like, I'll put this on to go to all sleep. All I heard too. was, what's your name? <laughs> out. Um, Sam, I think you, you, you thought of this question was gift giving. Um, you are known for your good gifts when it comes to your children, uh, you know, when it comes to your wife. What, uh, what makes a good gift and how did you become a great gift giver? Yeah, I, I don't know that I'm a great gift giver, but what, you I, are. what I do... <laughs> <laughs> can't argue with Samuel. <laughs> um, it, it, there's different kinds of gifts that you buy. Like your kid will say, tomorrow's the last day of school and I want to, before Christmas break, and we, I want to get my teacher a gift. So I'm going out and buying a gift for someone I don't know. When you know people and love them, it influences the gift because you spent enough time getting to know them that you know what they want. Mm -hmm. And so I think, like, I'm already trying to think about what a good Christmas gift would be for my wife. And her birthday is nine days before Christmas. 
So I got this one-two punch, and I can't give one gift and say it's for both, and I can't wrap her birthday present in Christmas <laughs> paper because I've memorized those rules. Mm-hmm. We do have rules in my house. <laughs> um, uh, but but look, I, I want gifts to be thoughtful that I give. I, I want them to. I want people to know that I love them when I pick out the gift and I try to think of something that I think would be really cool that, that they, and sometimes they're not even thinking of it, but I think, and sometimes I want to stretch people with gifts. Sometimes I, mean, I just want to accomplish different things and say, I want somebody to try something they've never tried before. So I, I, hmm. I just like to, I, I do like to put thought into gifts, but I think the best gifts I've ever received are people who really know me well and they yeah. love me. Yeah. And so I try to reciprocate that because I've been on the receiving end of a lot of good gifts. Most of them are to cook large quantities of food, but yeah. I'm grateful <laughs> for them. So. Your kids definitely also have that gift. Of giving gifts? Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, I like, so. Morgan's given me a number of gifts, and it's, like, something I never expect, and it's usually fantastic. Oh, very good. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Noah, is this news to you? Or? <laughs> <laughs> no, Noah's often Noah, combined yeah. with them. Noah, you, you've given me, I remember that sonnet you gave me, the Christmas sonnet. Oh. <laughs> you still have that. That's right. Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm just trying to think of this, if there is anything else that we'd like to discuss. Um, obviously, we're grateful, Mike. We wanted to have you on because you have a lot of wisdom. We could go on for hours. I know. I think we already have. We already have. Yeah, <laughs> almost. <laughs> um, but just that we are grateful as men, also to you uh, and, and to God for you. I mean mm-hmm. to say, um, and just all of the ways that you've had impact on us. And um, had an impact on the church. And obviously, like I said, the goal is really it's to use this to open up a window into other Christians' lives who people might not have gotten the chance to know yet um, and to to glean from. And so all glory be to God that we have this opportunity to do this and that we have you sitting here with us. Um, but yeah, I've been a great recipient of that type mm, of teaching, yeah. of that type of wisdom from people I I worship with every Sunday and with people that I knew in other churches. And I'm I'm grateful for the people who've poured into me because right. that's the only way I know anything is that people have invested in me. It's, of course, always a work of the Spirit, but it, it's just wonderful. I'm grateful for the people who've shown very real love to me and, and said very encouraging things and very hard things to me through the years. Very yeah. grateful for that. Not always grateful in the moment the way I should be, but but grateful retrospectively for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Noah, did you have a... <laughs> you didn't even give him a microphone. No, well, I know. You're asking, I'm sorry. Now no, you're asking him uh, questions. Yeah. You're, we can cut all this out, but what, what's your question that you're asking, you're writing down? It's not a question. It's a comment. Oh, okay. Okay. I think his comment is one hour and 50 minutes is too long. <laughs> uh, Sam, Sam would be able to hit on this. That's why I wrote it down. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Go ahead. Um, as we see God blessing our church with the num- like numbers, mm-hmm. essentially, a lot more than that, we're getting a lot of numbers that are not just... Let me rephrase this. Okay, I'm going to say... As we see our church growing in quantity and quality, how do we... How do we make sure that we are still getting to know people like well in smaller groups and also just having the deeper relationships that we saw very vividly in like the early days of the church. Um, and then how do you cater the hunger for God's word that we also saw maintained throughout the church? How do we like keep that growing in the future? 
Well, I think as, as a church gets bigger, we have to be more purposeful in saying that a Sunday may not involve us talking to our friends, that there'll be times to get together with our friends. And it's easy to be drawn to people who you know really well and you spend a lot of fun time with. But it is, I am challenged and at times embarrassed by the fact that I don't know everyone I worship with every Sunday. Hmm. And so I have tried to be more diligent with this and teach my kids to do the same. And when my wife meets somebody, she tries to drag me in to meet the couple, and I try to do the same as well. And I need to be better at this. And, and, and as we get bigger as a church, it's more of a challenge. But it is, you really say to yourself, I'm going to be purposeful on Sunday morning and get to know people. I, I think that's the key. I think that's the key. You, you mentioned you mentioned small groups. Small groups are a great place to get people integrated in the Absolutely. church. Well, you know, if you, yeah. come, if you come into our church mid-year and a small group's already started, we need to welcome those people mid-year, give them a book, and get them, get them going. Uh, and, and again, just have have lots of opportunities to get to know people. And, and yeah. it, we always do the things we think are important, no matter how big the church is. <laughs> you want to meet new people, you'll yeah. meet new people. Yeah, just do it. I'm. Uh, I was also wanted to ask about um, just the start of the. Uh, the building of this building. Mm-hmm. Just, I know you have a lot of stories that go into that, a lot of ways that God provided, uh, whether it was through services that people had to do in order to get this thing made. Um, but what was what was your experience going through that? How long did it take to make the building? I can't even remember. It was over a couple of years. Some okay. of the details are, are have escaped me, probably because sure. I wanted to try to forget <laughs> some of it. But I, I think we had a perfect storm, is what the world would call it. Hmm, okay. yeah. We had a crash in the economy, which made contractors less expensive. We had a man from uh, another church who's a general contractor and built commercial buildings his whole life offer his general contractor services for free. Right, yes. We had an incredibly generous church who gave almost $2 million during the capital campaign, mm-hmm. like numbers that uh, that were astounding mm-hmm. to me. And we just we saw uh, a man, Matt McClavick, make himself available on site or, you know, clearly managing the process from a local level and and making sure the checks got written for where they need to get written and everything got moving along. And he's a, he's a visual guy and a creative guy to start with, but he's also very task oriented. So he brought unique skills to this process and we saw people sacrifice. They drove cars a very long time. They didn't take vacations. Uh, And, and, I, I prayed. I prayed that people, that no one's roof would leak and nobody's car would break down during that mm. entire building yeah. process and that capital campaign. And we just saw God make it work. And we got this yeah. beautiful building that uh, has been a great blessing to us. So it's how, how exactly were you involved in it? I mean, were you just kind of facilitating? Um, I had some role in the capital campaign. So after um, a man named Mike Verlenick led the right. capital campaign, mm-hmm. and uh, he was he relocated out of the area. So at the time where the money started coming in, I took over. Okay. And so I would send newsletters out and encourage people and tell them where we were on giving and let them know how they could give and talk about what it's going toward and just try to build enthusiasm as people were making very real sacrifices in yeah. their personal lives. Yeah. It, it was, to, was it 2008 when the, ca- the capital campaign started? Um, I believe it was 09 when 09. it started. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's crazy. Time flies. Um, yeah. And it is amazing just how much God has blessed the building. And now we're even going through, you know, just, the growth of it all. We yeah. finally have the balcony. It's mm-hmm. just incredible. Um, and so grateful to God for putting it all in our lap and mm-hmm. just giving it to us. It's, it's amazing. Um, yeah. Sam, did you have any other questions? 
No, I think that's about great. Thank you, Mike. Really Thank appreciate you, you coming on. Joy be with you guys tonight. It was a fantastic time. Noah, did you have anything else? He has no microphone. He has no mic. No, here, pass this over to you. Just the sound engineer. (laughs) Sweet. Okay. All right. Thank you, Mike. We hope you enjoyed this content and were edified by it. If you have any questions, please email us at fellowheirs at christtheword.com. Thank you for listening. God bless.